0: So, I encourage you to turn your Bibles now to the book of Mark, the book of Mark. We've been studying through the book of Mark since the beginning of this year, and we come to Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 31, 13 through 31. This is a long passage, and I decided to take this in one message so we can capture the thought and the contrast that is given here. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 31. As you very well know, Jesus has been ministering in the area of Perea. He is within the last six months of his ministry, and then he will go to the cross in Jerusalem. He is on his way. He's finished his Galilean ministry to a short ministry now in the area of Perea, which is on the other side of the Jordan and The text in Mark chapter 10, verse 13, reads as this. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus looking around said to his disciples how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of god the disciples were amazed at his words but jesus answered again and said to them children how hard it is to enter the kingdom of god it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of god they were even more astonished and said to him then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come before your holy word. We pray, God, that you would help us to have a heart of reverence, to fear you, to tremble at your word. We pray, Father, this morning that you would open the eyes of our hearts, especially, Father, if any who are here are blind to their own condition. I pray, Father, open our hearts that we might see great and mighty things from thy law. In Jesus' name, amen. There's an article that was written entitled, Are You Rich Enough to Live Forever? Written by Paul Tullis, town and country. Subtitled, Immorality is One Luxury, the World's Wealthiest are Determined, or Immortality I should say. It's one luxury, the World's Wealthiest are Determined to Buy at Any Cost. And the article goes on to say, in the last hundred years, advances in medicine, advances have been done, adding on average two years to the life expectancy every decade. But apparently, for some people, this is not enough. And there are attempts to accelerate the life expectancy, especially among those who are very wealthy, very powerful. Here are some of the world's wealthiest who have taken up this battle. Entrepreneur David Asprey. He's the creator of Bulletproof Coffee. He takes 150 supplements a day to delay cognitive decline. He thinks he's going to live until he's 180 years old. And his various pioneering treatments on himself have cost him at least a million dollars. 2016, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos and other investors, gave $116 million to Unity Biotechnology whose aim is, quote, targeting cellular mechanisms at the root of age-related diseases. Oracle co-founder Larry Ellison has spent $430 million on anti-aging research and spent $200 million on his Cancer Institute at USC. He's often been quoted as saying, quote, death never made any sense to me. And in 2014, Google founders Sergey Brin and Larry Page announced a $1.5 billion research center. They launched Calico, a life extension company that focuses on genetic research and the development of pharmaceuticals targeting diseases associated with old age. Hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars invested, all to extend one's life. And if this world is all that you know, if you love this world, you love the things of this world, and you have no hope of life everlasting, it's understandable how you would invest as much as you can, because after this life, there's nothing else to look forward to. But if the Lord should tarry in his return for us as Christians, then death in this life... Will come to everyone. Well, everyone, believers and unbelievers, everyone will die. That is a guarantee. No matter how rich you are, no matter how much you own, no matter what you have, you cannot ever purchase. Eternal life. And in today's account, it is those very riches. It is that very wealth, that love of the world, that is the idol of this young man's heart, that is the very obstacle for this rich young ruler's path to eternal life. You know, one of the most exciting questions that a person can be asked is How can I have eternal life? How can I become a Christian? How can I be saved? How can I have forgiveness of sins? I remember when I was in high school, I remember being in my cabin. We had a youth retreat, and I was an upperclassman, and this guy who was a couple of years younger than I was woke me up in the middle of the night. And he told me simply and plainly that he wanted to become a Christian. And so we went outside in the dark of the night, I still remember, sat outside of our cabin, and we talked about being a Christian and what it meant. And afterwards, he wanted to receive the Lord and come to God, recognizing that he's a sinner. And we prayed together. It was one of the most memorable and exciting experiences that one can have and I still remember it even to this day. We, we celebrated the next day by playing football with the other guys. It was just a memorable time because it is someone who comes to know Jesus and has now moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Well, what Jesus does when this young, rich, young ruler comes before him in this passage is wholly different Because Jesus, the master physician, could see this man's heart. And he diagnosed this man's heart condition. And immediately he knew that this young man had a heart condition, which was a major problem. There was a blockage, a blockage, so to speak, in his heart, a major heart issue. And Jesus addresses that issue in this young man's heart. Well, we begin in this text, though, with Mark who records an incident. He records an incident about children who come to Jesus, about parents who are bringing their children who come to Jesus. And this incident stands in stark contrast to the account of this rich young ruler. So let's look at this account in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him, it says in verse 13, so he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. He took them in his arms and began blessing them and laying his hands on them. So they're here the scene is that there are these parents who are coming, and they're bringing their children. Now this word that Jesus, that Mark uses here could refer to any child up to the age of a grade school level, maybe 11, or something like that. But Luke is the one who indicates and uses the word "babies." These parents are bringing babies, young enough for verse 16, for Jesus to take them in his arms. And they are blessed by Jesus. But the disciples, the disciples were rebuking the parents, and that is a very strong word. In other words, they gave these parents a, uh, you know, a strong denunciation for what they were doing. They really gave these parents a piece of their mind as they brought these children, and they sure turned them away. And seeing this, Jesus became angry with them. Why? Because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. He doesn't say some of these. He doesn't say the kingdom belongs to those who are Jewish children or those who are part of the covenant or whatever. Jesus indicates that the entire class here of young children, as Luke would indicate, these infants or babies, are very special in the eyes of the Lord. Jesus never blesses those in this way who are not a part of the kingdom and i sort of think this lends credence to the idea of what jesus how jesus sees these infants how jesus sees these infants as a part of the kingdom in their infancy but this entire passage is placed here for the purpose of standing in contrast to what we will see of this rich young ruler Not only does Jesus make a statement about these infants, he says to them that this, this is important. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter at all. Now, how does a child come to someone else? Well, children have no achievements. They have no accolades. They have nothing they possess, which they are not given. They have no social standing. They have no life experience. They come in complete dependence upon their parents. Guardians, they're completely dependent. And Jesus chooses to use these as an illustration of humility because that is how people will come into the kingdom. You cannot come as an individual who is proud. You come into the kingdom as one who comes on your knees before God. Children, children were seen as those who were completely dependent They were considered the lowliest in society, as Daryl Bach writes. Even those who are Jews, they consider it a waste of their time to spend time teaching children under the age of 12, the Torah. But it stands in stark contrast to whom Jesus is going to encounter here, this rich young ruler. And we look at that in... Verse 17. The passage begins with this man coming to Jesus. And the man is later going to be identified as a wealthy man. Verse 22. And in Luke 18 18, the Bible tells us Luke calls him a ruler. And Matthew calls him something, so a person who is young. So this passage is known as the rich young ruler. And it's likely that he was a ruler of a local synagogue. That's the traditional. Understanding of this passage is whom would he be a ruler over? So this young man, he had attained a status, a status as a ruler. He had attained wealth because he owned much property. and his young age, he seemingly had it all together. He had what you could want at a young age. And there are many commendable things about this young man. A number of commendable things. Unlike the religious leaders, for example, he knew he had a need. He knew that he didn't have eternal life, and thus prompted his question. And he came to Jesus. The text says that he ran to Jesus, which was uncommon in those days, because men didn't run. It was considered to be sort of uh, shameful or undignified. Men didn't run because you would show your legs. That's what was amazing about Luke 15 in the parable of the prodigal son when the father sees him from far away it says the father ran to him because he so much cared for his lost son that he didn't care about how others might think but he ran to his son and so too this man ran to Jesus and he knelt before Jesus in public. You can understand Jesus, wherever Jesus went, he always attracted a crowd. There were always people around. and So here this young man, he would be a ruler, he would be well known among the people because he would be a public figure in the local synagogue. And here I'm sure he pushes his way through the crowd and he's running to Jesus and he throws himself prostrate before Jesus. And he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Before the other religious rulers who had antagonistic you know, antagonism towards Jesus. They didn't like Jesus here this man is commendable actions and he says what shall i do to inherit eternal life now if this happened to you somebody came to you and said that i'm sure you and i would be excited we should be elated that somebody wants to know how can i become a christian how can I be saved? How can I have eternal life? How can I be forgiven of my sins? Maybe you might, you know, tell them your testimony. Maybe you might pull out that little wordless book. Maybe you might take a piece of paper and use the bridge illustration and share with them the gospel. That's probably what many of us would do. Now I remember when I was in college, I shared this before, how I was learning to do campus evangelism at the University of Washington, and I asked one of the campus crusade workers if they could teach me and train me. and We came across, we were in the hub, and I was, I was the learner, and my job was to pray while he would encounter, and I would watch him, how he would share and talk with individuals, just called Turkey Evangelism at the UW campus. And we came across this guy who was sitting in the hub, and he was studying away, and, and we asked him if we might be able to talk with him. And after engaging him in some preliminary discussion... The campus worker shared the gospel, and they asked this young man if he wanted to receive Christ and become a Christian. And this man, he said, yes. Now, I was just a tag-along learner, the the, the one who was praying, but I was excited. I, I, I was really excited, and I'm thinking to myself, great, let's pray, close the deal You know, make the sale. And the crusade worker said, well, why do you want to become a Christian? And honestly, I thought, what in the world are you doing? You are not asking the right question. This guy wants to become a Christian. Let's pray. Lead him in the kingdom. Drag him into the kingdom. I don't care what it takes, but let him say the prayer, and then we'll be all good and done. I was so frustrated because he was just asking more questions and asking more questions. And lo and behold, the next thing you know, this student, as he began to answer the crusade workers' questions, it became very clear that he simply wanted to ask and add Jesus as one of the many beliefs that he held. He just wanted to add Jesus as a way that would be sort of another fire insurance policy to his quote-unquote salvation. His Jesus wasn't the Jesus of the Bible. So we walked away from there, and I was still upset. But I realized from that that one had to know and understand who Jesus is and what he has done and who we are and how we need to respond but in my own immaturity I was so anxious I thought that it was the sinner's prayer was sort of a formula that gained somebody the ticket to forgiveness of sins and eternal life but Jesus here in like manner he was the master physician, the spiritual physician who could see into this young man's heart, and this man had to have his beliefs corrected first, and he needed to examine his own heart honestly before God, so he asks the man, and the man says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 17, and Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus was not saying that he himself was not good. James Brooks writes, quote, in Jewish thought, God was preeminently good, so much so that it was unusual to apply the term to anyone else. That was the main reason for Jesus' question and statement. You know, today we use the word good so colloquially, it sort of has lost various meanings. I mean, how are you? I'm good. I'm so sorry for saying that. We might apologize. No, No problem, you're good. So, oh, it's all good. Or we guess it beats, like, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's used in so many different ways. I mean, it's, we'd rather say that than something like, I'm bad, or I'm terrible, or I'm depraved, or whatever. That wouldn't go over well. The young ruler here was using it in a way as a compliment to Jesus, but Jesus corrects his beliefs because what he does here in making this statement, he makes good as an absolute rather than as a relative standard. That absolute goodness must be tested against God who is good. And Jesus is making that point. Now, it's not as if Jesus never used the word good in a relative statement. He said the good man brings out of his good treasure what is good in Matthew twelve thirty-five. But for this man, this man, he wanted him to know that the supreme standard of goodness was God. Because you see, even in our society today, that's a common belief. That's a common belief among people today. They believe that they're good in a relative sense. They see themselves as a good person. They compare themselves to somebody who's worse than they are. They say, I've never murdered anyone. I've never robbed a bank. I've never committed any major crime. They think there are some, are, they are good. I read an article about a man who, back in 2001, on April 13th, his name was Luther Castile. He walked into a pub in Eglin or Elgin, Illinois. And he had four guns and he opened fire. He killed two people, he wounded six others. And at his trial, he was unrepentant. According to the Chicago Tribune, when asked by his attorney if he felt any remorse, this is what he said Any feelings I have in that regard. I'll keep between myself and the Lord. He said, as ironic as this sounds, I'm a passionate, giving person. I like to think I'm a pretty good person. I'm not one to hurt anyone. That doesn't provoke me, unquote. Even murderers or those who are incarcerated think more highly of themselves than they ought. They think of themselves sometimes even as good people. People. When compared to others, most people don't think of themselves like Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, who says, wretched man that I am. But when we compare ourselves to a standard of the holiness and the goodness of who God is, when we have a right conception of who God is, and when we have great thoughts of God and the holiness of God, we will see our own sinfulness. Just like when you shine a bright light on dirty clothing, you see all of the spots. When Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 comes and the Vision of the Lord sitting on his throne high and lifted up comes. Isaiah responds in verse 5 of Isaiah 6. He says, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. God's holiness exposes our sinfulness And when we stop to think about how God is holy and how pure God is and how righteous God is, we see our own unrighteousness, our own sin before God. That is why it is so important to understand how holy, how pure, how much God hates sin. That we too might hate our own sin just as God hates our sin. This man didn't own up to his own sin. He was blinded to his own sin. That is what the following verses shows. Jesus presents him with a number of the 10 commandments. Jesus like a master teacher and doctor, he doesn't say you sinner. He wants this man drawing trying to draw this man out to recognize his own sinfulness. And he says to him, you know the commandments, verse 19, and he says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not seal, etc. You want eternal life? You've got to compare yourself to God's holiness and live a perfect life, keeping all these commandments. And yet this man says, what? Teacher, I kept all these things from my youth up. Suddenly, this man becomes really stuffy. Becomes really stuffy. Now, I think this man genuinely thought that he did. I think this man wasn't lying. He was obviously deceived for his own self, but I think he really thought that he kept all these things from his youth up. How? See, in those days, the rabbis took the commandments, took the commandments, and they had provisions by which you could keep all of these commandments. They had a standard that was lower than God's standard so that people could somehow keep these commandments and look in God's eyes to be perfect. And he was a very devout individual. He was the ruler of the local synagogue. And so I'm sure that he was known to be upright, and he probably thought to himself, not only have I done these, but everybody else thinks I am. Otherwise, I wouldn't be a ruler of the synagogue. But Jesus brings forth the law. He brings forth the law for the very purpose of what? that the man might see his own sinfulness and be driven to God. That is the purpose of the law. In, Genesis, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, Paul writes about the purpose of the law. He says, therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. In other words, the law of God was given so that we might see how inadequate we are, how much of a sinner we are, how much we fall short. And we cry to God saying, help me, save me from my own sin because I cannot keep the law. And the law was given so that it might lead us to Jesus so that we might be justified, not by the works of the law, not by keeping all of the law, but, by, but justified by faith That is the justification that we are looking for, the justification by God declaring us righteous, declaring us right by the sole declaration of God. It is somewhat like when I was in traffic court, California, 25 years ago, you go up there, you know, and I'm standing with all these guys in orange jumpsuits behind me because of a traffic infraction that was not a moving violation but they ask for your plea that's the first thing they do you're standing in the court this is the same court that OG Simpson was in and I'm standing there and they ask what is your plea and I couldn't say not guilty because I had committed the infraction so I said guilty your honor and I tell you I can't tell you how bad I felt because I was guilty and here I was telling everyone there I was guilty, including all these convicts beside me. And the judge gave me a chance to explain my circumstances, and after a few minutes, the judge told me I was excused and go see the clerk outside the door. And in fact, I still was so confused, I went to the clerk and I said, well, <clears throat> how, how much do I owe? The clerk looked at me and said, nothing, go. Go. The judge had made a declaration. I didn't even realize it. The declaration was that I was free, debt-free. By declaration, I was free. God declares us righteous, not based upon our own good works, our own good deeds. He declares us righteous by the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life on our behalf. And only God can do that. Only God can do that for someone who says, guilty. I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. I am a sinner. This man, he didn't own up to that. But still, Jesus loved him. It says, verse 21, Jesus felt a love for him. He had compassion on him, and he said, one thing you lack, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and went away grieving For he was one who owned much property. You know, one of the downsides of wealth that we see is that we become very self-sufficient. We look at our wealth and subconsciously we say, why do I need God? We think we have everything that we need in this life and there's no sense of desperation, no sense of need to pray, no sense of a need for a life. We're so self-sufficient. We're not suffering, we say to ourselves. In fact, we're quite happy. And then our walk with the Lord becomes all the worse. But for those who don't know him, don't know God, it becomes a barrier even. Jesus was not trying to be hard on this man. In fact, like I mentioned, Jesus loved this man. And out of love, Jesus tells him what is true. He tells him what is true about his own heart and life, that this young man had an idol that stood in the way that kept him from coming to Christ. This man loved the things of the world. He loved the riches of the world, and he was unwilling in his heart to give them up for the sake of eternal life. John warns us about that in 1 John 2.15, do not love The world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This man loved the world. He loved the things of the world. And he didn't have the love of God in him. He wasn't saved. In other words, there is an examination of the heart that Jesus calls this man to, and it is the same question for you and for I. Do you love this world? And do you love the things this world has to offer? It's not an issue of having or not having. It's not an issue of that. It's an issue of worship. What this man wants, he wants to worship. The idol of his heart was wealth. What's the idol of our heart? He was unwilling to trade All that he owned, and Jesus challenged him on this, unwilling to give up all that he owned in order to gain eternal life because he wanted to hold on to this. It's like the parables of Jesus. The parables of Jesus in Matthew chapter 13, there's the parable of the buried treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price. In the parable of the buried treasure in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, it says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and he hid again. He can't take that treasure. The field doesn't belong to him. But it says, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he owns and buys the field. That treasure is so valuable to him, he sells everything that he owns so he can gain that land and gain the treasure. He's willing to give up everything in order to gain that treasure. And the same with the pearl of great price, says the kingdom of heaven, Matthew thirteen forty-five, is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Everything that he had, he sold it just so he could get that one pearl. Everything he had, he sold all so that he could gain that one treasure. And Jesus is calling to this man, are you willing to give up everything that you have and come follow me in order to gain eternal life? He is after the willingness of the heart to, number one, recognize that he's a sinner, and two, to recognize that he needs to surrender himself to the lordship of Christ. For he says no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. One of the early church fathers, Polycarp, said if anyone does not refrain from the love of money, he will be defiled by idolatry and so be judged as if he were one of the heathen. Unquote. Is that us? Is that you? Well, the disciples are confused. Verse 23 to 27, Jesus looks at him and says, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples were amazed. That's what it says in verse 24. They were amazed. They weren't amazed because Jesus didn't immediately usher this man into the kingdom like my own immaturity was in the campus. They were amazed because this profile, this profile of this young man who comes, who comes in their eye's eye, would have seen that this young man was Already in God's favor. He should be in the kingdom. That's what they would be thinking because there was a strong view, a strong view that said, you know what? If you're blessed by God, you're wealthy, you're good health, you're devout, you go to the synagogue, you order all the services, you ask the right questions, and you're a Jew. You're already in the kingdom. You're already a Christian, so to speak, if it were in our day. If you're not in God's favor, their theology was, gosh, if you're sick, immediately God's judging you, or God's disciplining you, or maybe it's because of your sin or your parents' sin, John chapter 1, verse 10. Maybe you're a Gentile. That's even worse. That permeated people's views. And sometimes people today have that same view, that if you're sick or somehow God's disciplining you, and God's judging you, or whatever, but if you're blessed with wealth, God, you must be in God's favor, and so they're they're thinking to themselves, wow, I'm amazed. Jesus is not letting this man into the kingdom. What is going on here? I mean, we might think the same thing. Wow, this young person, so well-behaved, they know all the Sunday school answers, they come to every fellowship, they do their devotions every day. They never miss a beat. They're a model student. They're obedient to their parents. They have good grades. They never talk back. They don't give a bad attitude. If anything, if this person isn't a Christian, I I don't know who is. If anybody is going to heaven, it must be this person. So the disciples are confused. Here's a rich young ruler, devout individual, But Jesus sees this man's heart. He's never, ever surrendered his life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. He's never surrendered his life willing to trust Jesus completely for his salvation because he loves the world more than he loves God and more than he loves eternal life. No, he is not saved. Jesus says again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. I mean, the Persians had a phrase by which the Jews had adopted. The Persians had a phrase in which it would be more difficult for an elephant to go through the eye of a needle, but the Jews adopted it in the Middle East. The camel was a large animal, and basically they were saying, look, it is impossible, it is impossible They were more astonished when he said to them, then who can be saved, they said. Looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. In case they don't get the point of a camel going through the eye of a needle. It is impossible. And verse 27 underscores this idea that salvation is all of God's work. You cannot get into heaven, no matter how wealthy you are, no matter how good you are, no matter how frequently you do devotions, no matter how frequently you serve in the church. It is impossible. But one must come like the children, humble in spirit, recognizing their own sin and placing their faith and trust in Jesus to save them from their sin well Peter is rather pragmatic because they're still trying to understand what Jesus is saying and he says "Well, what about us we've given up everything we've given up everything and the reward in verse 28 Jesus says to them you know what I say to you no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake but he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecution. This is a promise. And in the age to come, eternal life. See, when people came to Christ in those days, there would be division in the family. There would be separation. There would be ostracism. There would be persecution that would come. It was all in one package, but they too would be blessed. When you think about how the church in the book of Acts began, the early church began Pentecost and thousands of people came to know Christ and to be saved. The preaching of Peter, boom, one day, mega church, Thousands of people. And what happened to those Christians? They stuck around Jerusalem. They stuck around Jerusalem because that was the only source of teaching at the time. The apostles were the ones who were teaching. So thousands of people stayed longer than just for the feast. They didn't go back home. I'm sure some of them did. But where did they find houses? Where did they find family? Where did they find food? Well, some of those Christians were in Jerusalem. They lived in Jerusalem. They opened up their doors to the new believers who had come from far away. They opened up their doors and suddenly their family was not just their nuclear family, but became the church. And they became one of many believers who would occupy the church, who would stay there, they would have food and fellowship, and they found the type of joy and the peace. The beginning of the church, they found peace. They were looked upon with favor in the early church. But God had a plan even for that, because he knew that if they continued to stay there, that they would just desire just to stick around. So in Acts chapter 7, there was the stoning of Stephen, and we find the account of Saul. And there became the persecution upon the church, the persecution upon the early church. And the church scattered across Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, bringing with them the gospel message But what a reward, because as soon as they came to Christ, their family expanded into the family of God. They experienced the hospitality of other believers. They experienced the love, the fellowship, and experienced spiritual brothers and sisters and family members that they had not had before, along with persecution that would come. And so, too, when somebody comes to Jesus... When somebody places their faith and trust in the Savior, they too receive the Spirit of God which places them within a family, a spiritual family, and gives them the gift of eternal life. And just as the little child illustrated how someone needs to come to Jesus, so too Jesus says, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first, because it's I mentioned children were often seen as those who would be last. And the question for you and I this morning are this. Are you, are you a genuine Christian? Are you a genuine believer? If you were to die today on the way home from church, are you sure that your soul would be in heaven with Jesus? Have you ever come to Jesus? put away your pride and all that you have had, to put away the fact that maybe you've gone to church all of your life, to put away the fact that maybe you have a lot of material blessings, to confess that maybe some of those things are idols in your heart, to recognize that you are completely dependent and unworthy of God's blessing to recognize who Jesus is as the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins, was risen on the third day so that we can have the hope of eternal life? Do you recognize that you are a sinner before God, that you need to say, I am guilty, I am a sinner, and to throw yourself at the mercy of God, that God is the judge might declare your debt paid by Jesus and receive true freedom and receive true eternal life? Or are you like this rich young ruler who thinks that they are a part of the kingdom, who says, you know what, I've been a good person. I've kept these commandments. I haven't done anything. I, I look at relative goodness and I'm not so bad. A person who loves this world, who loves the things of this world because in essence they love their own sin. There's an idol in your heart that you won't give up. In this man's heart, he was unwilling to fully surrender his life to Jesus and say to Jesus, whatever you wish of my life, you are my Lord, and I want to give myself to you. Jesus wanted this man to recognize his sinfulness, his dependence, and recognize his idol in his own heart, that he was unwilling to give up his love for himself in his idol of wealth. Are you willing to turn from your sin and receive Jesus today? Because today could be the day that you can be assured of your place in heaven, have eternal life to be able to say, I am a part of a larger family. I am a part of a larger family. That God will bless me with brothers and sisters, with riches beyond what I could ever dream. Becoming a Christian isn't because of some formulaic prayer. Becoming a Christian isn't because you've said the right words or even just believed the right things. Becoming a Christian Someone has to recognize who they are and who Jesus is, what Jesus has done to die for them, and how they need to respond, to cast yourself upon the mercy of God, and to say, Lord, save me. I am a sinner. Grant to me eternal life, because I cannot do anything on my own. Like a child, I want to come, because I recognize that I am helpless, and I need you you could do that today you could do that today and if you want to there'll be an elder or two here praying for you would love to pray with you would love to talk with more more with with you afterwards but i'd encourage you to consider seriously god's message of how can i have eternal life let's pray Father, earlier we sang to you, O great God of highest heaven, come and occupy my lowly heart. I pray, O Father, that that might be true of all who are here today. God, you know the condition, the heart condition of each and every person who is here. You see by your divine eyes the state of each and every person's eternal salvation. You know whether or not they are a child of yours. And Father, I pray that your spirit would work within those who do not know you. I pray, Father, that you would help us, Lord, to see and not be self-deceived, like this young man, who thought well of himself, who thought that he was a part of the kingdom, who likely thought that simply because he was a Jew, he would be in the kingdom of heaven. But I pray, Father, for the salvation of those here who do not know you, who have never come to you to ask for your forgiveness, recognizing the work of your Son, and his resurrection, that they might have life. I pray, Father, for them, that they might cast themselves at your mercy and say, I am guilty. Save me, because I need you. Grant to me eternal life, life everlasting. I pray, Father, that you would draw people to yourself, for your own glory and your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.